0: Um, we're going to go to John chapter eight today. Continue our study and our walk through the book of John. So, if you want to go there with me, John chapter eight. We're going to start at verse forty-two and end up down at verse forty-seven. All right. So, John chapter two. Now, this past Friday, uh, I saw a number of people remember and recognize that it was the celebration of the seventieth anniversary of D-Day. Um, and I don't know how many of you are like history buff people or whatever, but as you as you kind of remember that. It is, it is really unimaginable the, the kind of the courage that that took for these men to you know storm that, the, the beach and, and to just walk into the teeth of the enemy there uh, and to do it for the cause of freedom and, and just so thankful. But sometimes when I'm, when I'm listening to the tale and, and watching the background and stuff, what really jumps out at me is how much Um, we were paying attention to what the Germans were doing, like where they were and where they weren't, you know, their strategy, watching them, um, and how much we were doing on our side to make sure that they didn't know what we were doing. Now, that makes sense, doesn't it? If you're in a war, you don't really want your enemy to know what you're doing, and you'd really like to know what they're doing, right? Um, When I was in college, I was the coach of our soccer team. And uh, it was just for one year. And as the coach of our soccer team, uh, we actually went all the way to the championship game. Uh, and I remember it very vividly because we had a very veteran team. It was very very skilled players, very good soccer players. We had one person that was their first year playing. He was he was the goaltender. It was a rookie goaltender. But everybody else on our team was pretty experienced, and he was very good. But he was. You know very green he didn't he didn 't have a lot of experience. It was actually his first year even playing goalie uh, for us, so it was a pretty you know interesting tightrope walk we walked all year. but we made it to the championship game and about halfway through the second half of the championship game, I realized that the strategy that our opponents had undertaken was that they were going to take all eleven of their men on their team and move them back into their half of the field to just clog it up and to stop us from. Basically, just stop us from scoring so that they could go to a shootout because they believed that they could beat our rookie goaltender one-on-one. It was a tie, tie game. And I, I don't know why it didn't dawn on me as you know, a huge, huge strategic blunder, but when I realized what they were doing, I was like, oh, I wish I had adjusted some things because now I know what they're doing. I wish I had changed some stuff because I couldn't figure out why we weren't scoring and then it dawned on me. And we wound up losing the game. It's kind of a fluke goal or whatever. But, but whatever, what, what jumps out at me from that is knowing your opponent's strategy, recognizing their strategy, really is a helpful thing in a war or in a battle or in a competition, right? Well, how many of you are in a spiritual battle today? Correct answer? All of you. Aware of it or unaware of it, you are in a spiritual battle. Would it be helpful to you to know some of the tactics of your enemy? Would it be a good thing to understand how he comes at you, where the the spots are that he attacks and what he goes after? Can you recognize when you're falling for his traps, when he's at work trying to push or pressure you? What we're going to look at today in John chapter 8 is in the middle of this long discussion that comes off of uh, you know, the challenges against Jesus. You know, who, prove to us who you are. And Jesus is challenging them right back. And so what he does in this passage, in this chunk, is he really lays out how Satan's nature drives his methods. In other words, what Satan, our enemy, really does is he lives out who he is in the, the strategies that he employs. And so Jesus is going to point to these things. And I, I hope that today, as we walk out of here, we are more aware of how our enemy will come at us. And it will give us the opportunity to check ourselves, whether we are trapped somewhere, whether we've been falling for it, whether we've been caught in some of the things that he wants to do. Jesus' challenge in this passage is to men who think that God is their father. Men who think that God is their father. And Jesus says, actually, you're children of the devil. Now, would that be a sobering reality check from Jesus to you? There are people in churches all over this nation. And they think God is their father. And Jesus says, no, you're a child of the devil. How can you tell? How can you tell? Well, maybe there's also people, I believe, with all my heart, there are people in churches today who are children of God, but are acting like children of the devil. Because they're falling for the tricks. They're falling for the, the, the ploys and the tactics of the enemy. We certainly can revert. But when Jesus comes into our life, and I think you could testify to this, many of you, when Jesus comes into your life, you are foundationally different than you were. He changes your soul. He doesn't change your Sunday morning habit Oh, I'll go to church instead of not going to church. He doesn't just change your reading habit, well, I'll read the Bible. He doesn't change your music habit, well, I'm going to listen to music. That's not what he does. He changes you. He changes your very soul. And that has an effect on what becomes naturally you or what becomes naturally not you. It's not that you can't revert to what you were before. You can because you still live in this flesh. But do you understand that what you are made in Christ is dying to get out of you and struggling against what you used to be. And so what used to be normal isn't anymore. And sometimes we get confused as, as we're going through a life. I don't know, is this God or is this not God? I think that some of the things Jesus talks about here can help you see through these, the, the, the fog in your life. I talk to people a lot of times about, do you know what God wants? We sang this morning, I will follow you. Well, in order to follow him, what do you have to know? Where he's leading. Do you know where he's leading? Oh yeah, I want to follow him. I want to follow him. Okay, go do that. I send you forth to follow him. How do you know how to follow him? Do you know his voice? Later, Jesus makes that point. Thy sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Here, what he's saying is, you're listening to the wrong voice. You're following the wrong leader. And so he says... These three earmarks are the work of Satan. The first one is that he plays on our passion, what we what we despise and what we embrace. He always brings destruction. And he is the father of lies. And so we're going to look at that this day. These are the way, the normal pathways that Satan operates. They are his well-known and well-worn tools. And I want to know today, are we getting sucked into his traps? Are we operating in a mode that's following him? Do we need to let Jesus reset our hearts and our souls today? And so start with me at verse 42. We're going to read the first two verses here as Jesus begins to talk to them, Because they've just said, the only father we have is God himself. So Jesus says, verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and now am here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. All right, first thing we can do to check ourselves, to check whether we have fallen prey, is to understand that one of the things that our enemy comes after in us is our passion. What are you passionate about? What do you love? I mean, really love. I'm not talking about do you love cheesecake, you know. Maybe some of you do love cheesecake like to that degree, but I'm talking about what is like the driving force of your life. What are you all in on? What is your passion? This, in this bigger picture, he's talking about how what you love or what you don't love says a lot about who you're following. And in what he's talking to them, he's saying, the reason that you're doing these things, the reason that these things are a part of you is because you're mirroring the nature of Satan, who is actually your father. Probably one of the biggest keys in, in the cause of Christ but in your life about following God is where are your passions directed? And you can tell that by where you direct certain things that you get to choose, like your time, your attention, your resources, your focus, your hope. Where you direct those says a lot about your passion. I believe this. Sometimes people will say, well, there's, a, there's just a, a devastating lack of passion in church today. The, the the hard cry for the kingdom of God is that there's no passion in our church. I don't believe that. I believe there's plenty of passion in our church. But the enemy has misdirected our passion to things that don't matter. To things that matter enough to feel like they're important, but they don't matter enough to give your life to them. You know what I mean? They matter like, man, this is really important. If I don't pay my electric bill, I have a bad testimony and my electric goes out and all this food that I bought rots and it's important to pay my electric bill. But that can't be your passion about having enough money to pay your bills because it's not a big enough passion for life. Some of you are kind of scared of passion because passion has burnt you. You got all revved up about something and you went all in on it and then you found out it was a big mistake. You backed up from it and you were like, oh, I'm I'm not going to trust passion anymore. Well, listen, you can't live. God made you to live alive inside. You can't live dead and safe. You have to just find the right thing to put your passion into. What Jesus says to them is, you don't love me because you don't love the Father. Just like your father, the devil. Does that make sense? Satan hates God. Satan hates Jesus. Does that sound about right? Yeah, it sounds about right. Jesus says, the reason you don't have any passion for me is because you don't have any passion for him. And so my relationship with God is supposed to be filled up with this idea of life and fire. As you look at your life, what do you love? Who do you love? Item by item. You can look at it and say, is this something that God loves? Because what Jesus says is, if you love the Father, you'll love the stuff about the Father. You'll be drawn to it. You can look at it and say, is this what God's passionate about or not? Is this part of God's stuff, God's kingdom or not? Is this why God made me? Is this why he put me on this earth? Is this a passion that God had when he created me? Jesus says, if God were your father, you would love me because I came from God. You would love God, you would love God's people naturally. Do you? Or do you find it difficult to love God's people? Is it a struggle to really want to give and sacrifice and share in burden bearing? Do you love the things? Are you passionate about the things that God is? Are you passionate about the messengers that God sends your way? About God's instruments? About the things that he uses? About the stuff that reminds you of him? Jesus says you would love the stuff God loves and you would not love the stuff God hates. Do you? One of the greatest deceptions in our world today is that if I give God my life, I'm going to miss out on stuff. If I give God my life, I'm going to miss out on stuff. What's that say? Your passion is directed the wrong way. If God said to you, like he said to Abraham, get up and go, what would hold you back? You know what would hold you back? Misdirected passion. I don't want to miss out on this stuff. Would you love what God loves or not? Not. Would you hate what God hates? Well, I, there's some stuff in this world that's... I know it's wrong. I know it's not okay. But I love it. And I can't get away from it. This is not following God. Jesus says it's following your enemy. Jesus says, I came from God. He sent me. I represent him. I show you the Father. And if you were born of God, you would embrace me. You would celebrate me. Your passion would be toward me. Where's your passion for Jesus? Look at your life. Look at your life yesterday and today. Passion for Jesus anywhere? Well, I came to church, Mark. Okay, but how? Did you come ready and eager, dying for G- to meet Jesus here in a, in a powerful, precious way because we're with the saints and because I can't wait for him to tell me where to go and to fill me up. I can't wait to be with him. Is there passion for that? Or is it just check Went to church today, check, read my Bible today. Glad I got that off my list. Now I can go do some fun stuff. When you love someone, you're happy to have anything that reminds you of them. Anything that keeps you feeling close to them, right? So some of you have been in my, lots of you have been in my office. If you go down to my office and you sit down in a chair, whose faces do you see in my office? I mean, mine, obviously, but... All around you are pictures of my wife and my children. Why? Because I love them. And so I'm down in the office. I close the door so I can study, but I still want to see them, right? Do you know what I'm saying? You go to work every day. Do you have pictures of people you love at work? I hope you don't have like a picture of like a motorcycle or something. You know, like, oh, I love that motorcycle. You know what I mean? Like what an empty thing. What are you passionate And so you want reminders of them, right? You want to you feel close to them even when you're not. You love talking to them. They are precious to you. Their thoughts, their words, their feelings are precious to you. You love hearing from them. You love talking about them to other people, thinking about them when you're not with them. So if that's what passion is, do we have that with God? Do you love talking to Him? Do you love hearing from Him? Do you love talking about Him to other people? Do you love being reminded of Him? Is He central to your life? Do you think of Him? Think about Him through your day, through your life, through your week? Or is your energy directed somewhere else? Jesus tells them they hate Him because they don't love the Father like Satan doesn't love the Father. So today, here's the question. If you don't, If you look at your life and you find a passion deficit for the Father, what does that mean? Let the Spirit examine you. It may mean that you don't know Jesus. So come to Him. Because all that matters in life comes through Jesus Christ. Right? I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. So He's the life. So if you want a life, get a life in Jesus right that's how you get it you get a life through jesus all right so it could mean that but it could mean this you have fallen into the trap of your enemy you're a child of god but you have directed all of your passion and energy all of this way that god wired you to live alive to something that's just a treadmill that's just a trap door that's going to open up and swallow all your energy and it'll be nothing you know, there's this picture in, in 1 Corinthians 3 of a fire in heaven and the works of our life going through that fire and there's gold and silver and precious stones and wood and hay and stubble. And the wood, hay, and stubble burns up and is gone. I wonder how much of that is in your life. Stuff that when we get to heaven is just going to be gone and you spent your life on it. You know? Where's the passion inside of us? And Jesus says, listen, is my language not clear to you? Why would that be? He says, it's because you are unable to hear what I say. Maybe I'm talking to you today and you're like, this sounds confusing to me. I don't know. You seem a little weird, Mark, right? That's what Jesus said. These people looking at him are like, you guys think I'm weird. This sounds like nonsense to you. Why? Because you're following your father." And so faith seems ridiculous. Faith seems weird. Have you ever had that conversation with somebody? You're trying to share about what you believe about God, and they look at you like you're from another planet. You know? Why? Jesus says they are unable to hear because they're following their Father. That's why. They're unable to hear. It doesn't mean they're not hearing what you say. It doesn't even mean that they don't understand what you say. They just can't accept it because it's not of their nature. Because they're following the nature of what they're born. Jesus says your heritage spiritually determines your hearing spiritually. Who you are born from determines and dictates how you will hear. How you listen is dictated by who your father is. If you're not a child of God, you can't hear right spiritually. I don't mean that God doesn't enable those he's drawing to hear before they cross that line of faith. He does. He gives a special uh, ability to understand and hear. But outside of that, on your own, and truth is, even as a believer after you're saved, if you're going to try to think through the thoughts of God on your own, you are unable to hear it. It is the Spirit that enlightens. It's the Spirit that brings it alive in you. And so they can't accept what Jesus has to say. Their passions are pointed elsewhere they want jesus to bend to their desires they have no intention of bending to his and i think maybe that's the best test of where your passion is is jesus your passion when you pray do you pray so that jesus will bend to what you want or do you pray so that you'll bend to what he wants right how passionate are you So where is it? Are we falling prey to that trap to pour out this love, this this energy, this fire on stuff that's just entertaining, stuff that's just fun, but there's no meaning, there's no life, there's no purpose, there's no eternity to it. I know God gives us some of that stuff to enjoy. I'm not saying we should live monastic life out there, give up all privileges and pleasures. God gives us life to enjoy without a doubt, but generally we need to check ourselves because things that are fun, things that are pleasurable, things that are entertaining can quickly push us to leaving aside meaningful passion in our life because we enjoy them so much. They're so easy. So where is your passion? Who does it line up with? I would tell you this. Satan doesn't care if your passion is for good stuff or bad stuff, just so long as it's not God. He doesn't even care if you're passionate about the things that look like God or are around God's stuff, as long as it's not actually God, right? He loves to misdirect us, and that's a direct application from this passage. So we're going to keep going because that's the first thing. He comes at you through your passions, through the things where you're going to pour your life out as though this has meaning and purpose. Second thing, and we're just going to read verse 44 here, actually just the first part of 44 Because I think this is so telltale. And it's hard sometimes to discern this, but Satan is a destroyer. Here's what he says, verse 44. You belong to your father, the devil, and you carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. Here's what I that word murderer talks about the death and destruction, the killing, the devastation that is always the result of Satan's work. He is a devastator. He is a destroyer in your life. He loves to promise abundance and joy and satisfaction, satisfaction right up until he completely devastates your life. You don't follow Satan because he th- you think he's going to destroy you. You follow him because he thinks he's going to give you something you want. Only he doesn't. He gives you a little bit of it. He gives it to you for this moment. Then you've got to keep going back to him. And ultimately, he devastates your life. Jesus is referring to him as a murderer from the beginning, referring to the way that Satan brought death to the entire human race by tempting Adam and Eve and, and tripping them up so that they fell. Why did he do that? Because it was his desire to see these creations that God loved and fellowshiped with destroyed. He wanted to see them die. Do you think he has a different emotion towards you, child of God? He wants to destroy you. He can't, but he can get you to buy in and destroy yourself, right? End of Satan's work is always the same. Think about Cain and Abel. Sin is crouching at the door, a picture of the enemy there, the first murder in all of history. Later on, we see Satan enter into Judas to get the wheels in motion for Jesus' murder, how does he get us to buy into this destruction that he brings into our life? You know how? By our desires. It's his tool. Do you want this? Oh, you can have it. There's no need to not deny yourself of it. There's no need to deny yourself of anything you want. You deserve to be happy. Oh, does that sound like a commercial? Did that sound like our world's theme? You deserve to be happy. Where is that? And what exactly did you deserve? What did you do to deserve this happiness? And what does that say about the people throughout history who have suffered unimaginable harms? They didn't deserve it? They didn't do enough to earn happiness? And since when did happiness become the telltale about a good life or a bad life? By the way, did Jesus deserve happiness? What do you think? We do this for yes. We do this for now. I know it can get tricky. You can kind of like circle sometimes. Did Jesus deserve happiness? Did he choose it? You know why? Happiness is too small of a goal for life. It seems like if I could be happy, everything would be good. And it's the way Satan pulls you into his destruction plan. Well, you should be happy. Why wouldn't you want to be happy? Go this way. It'll make you happy. I can't stay with you anymore. I'm not happy. Oh, okay, because that's the ultimate goal, right? In our world today, if you're happy, you're alive. And yet Jesus chose to suffer and die. Satan loves to destroy. He loves to kill. He loves to devastate. And he, he takes every chance he can to increase the pain, to multiply it, to make it spread like a disease from one person to the next to the next. Look at Holmes. Look at the way that, that bitterness or woundedness spreads from one person to the next, right? It takes the power of Almighty God to stem the tide of Satan's work to destroy. He speaks into our ear and says, you've been wounded, you are mourning, you should be bitter. Don't just go through the grief process and heal from it and let God bring healing. you. You hold on to that bitterness. You hold on to it. Why? Because he wants to increase the pain. He wants to multiply it. He wants to make it happen. As a matter of fact, some of you, he loves this tactic to increase your pain. Think about the possible pain that could be coming and live in it today. Oh, no, what if this happens? And what if that happens? Well, has it happened? No. But are you living like it did? Yes. Whose work is that? He loves to destroy, to kill And so he speaks into our life and tries to get us off track into things that will make pain multiply. He he stirs up gossip so that my judgmental soul and my pride will bleed over into someone else. My inability to control what I have to say because I have to feel good about myself and I have to feel better than you bleeds over into other people and destroys families or friendships or work environments or churches. Satan loves that. It's his work. You see? Well, we're leaving because God has moved us on. Great. Well, let's see the telltales of God's spirit as you move on. Right? And I'm not saying that's a big deal here. I'm saying we've all come from churches where Satan's work prevailed. Right? And it was destructive. That's the work of the enemy. Lies and cheating and anger. This endless cycle of hurt and wounding. We have a saying, Hurt people hurt people, right? It's hurt people that hurt people. Why? Because they're hurt. And so it spills over our hurt from one person into the other. It's a thought process even that that gets to this extreme, you know? I'd rather destroy this thing than see it go to someone else. Right? What is that? That's the work of Satan because he loves to destroy He is a murderer from the beginning. Even to the place of suicide. Destroy yourself. The solution to your pain? Telltale of the enemy. Destruction. Kill. It's the work of the enemy whispering into the ear of God's people, pulling us into what we think are solutions that always end in destruction, death, devastation underneath is Jesus' warning. Satan, he's talking to these men, and he says, Satan wants to destroy you. He's a murderer from the beginning, and you're following him. He wants you to die. The passage right before this, he said to them several times, you will die in your sins. And that's what Satan wants, you to die in your sins. He wants you to say, "Ah, no, I don't think I'm going to cross that line of faith. I'm not going to give my life to the Lord. I'm going to wait till the last minute of my life so I can do what I want during my life, and then I can get like the get-out-of-hell-free card, you know. At the very last second. Right? Isn't that what people like? Well, let me ask you this when are you going to die? Maybe a better, maybe a better question is when do you want to start living? Because why would you wait till the end of your life to start living? Right? He loves to destroy. And Jesus says to them, Satan wants to keep you here so that you will die. The pull of our enemy on our life is for our destruction. No matter what he promises, if it's not from the Father, if it doesn't flow out of a passion for him in our life, all that we hold dear will be destroyed. Sometimes you only see the fruit of that later on. Sometimes you see it as it's going. You go, I think this is the right path, and you head down this path. But what starts happening is that things start to disintegrate. You know what that is? The grace of God to say to you, stop going this way you're destroying it by your own hand. This is not the work of God. This is the work of Satan. It reminds us we're not playing a game here. Spiritual warfare is real. Our enemy wants to destroy us. He doesn't want to just win with the next move. He doesn't want to have bragging rights. He wants to destroy the work and the people of God. He wants to kill and destroy. He wants to destroy your life. He wants to destroy your children. He wants to destroy our marriages. He wants to destroy our church. He wants to destroy the church. He wants to destroy God. And he will do all that he can to suck us in to his plan. How? Well, pick up verse 44 down to the end of the chapter because it tells about the primary way that he works in our lives. Here's what it says. You belong to your father, the devil. You want to carry out your father's desire because he was a murderer from the beginning. That's what we just looked at not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Satan's destructive nature is tied into this. It's even in the same verse there. His destruction comes about because he is a deceiver. He is a liar. He is a liar from the start. You remember he went to Adam and Eve and said, you won't really die. Yeah, eat the tree of the garden. You won't really die. Lie, right? Right? Liar from the beginning. In his temptation of Jesus, you can watch him twist and shade almost truths and half-lies. When Jesus says there is no truth in him, it doesn't mean that he never speaks anything that's true, but he always speaks truth enough so that his lie is buried, so that he deceives, so that he pulls people in to grand deceptions and takes what God wants to do into destruction. Paul tells us that Satan represents himself as an angel of light. Why? To deceive us. He calls us like, oh, this is a good thing. Come on this way. Deception. Things like this, and I've seen this, this, these kind of lies over and over again and many, many others. I've seen homes destroyed or devastated because a father and a man believes that the greatest call in a man's life is to provide for his family. And because of that, all bets are off. It's the thing I've got to do. It's not an evil thing, but what naturally results is I make that my highest priority is the destruction of my influence and my relationship with my children and the healthy spiritual family that God has called me to lead, because I'm disconnected because my highest priority is to provide for my family. I've seen it a thousand times. It's not that you're not called to provide, but it's not your highest call. You know what I mean? You know, I've seen this lie. The greatest good for parents to do, the best parents are the ones who keep their kids safe. Right? I would hate to put my child in danger. Well, did you have your child? Because if you did, they're in danger. I can even tell you this. I know how their life winds up. They die. This is not a safe world, folks. But it's a good intention. I want to keep my child safe, and I'm not suggesting that we run them across the highway, right? But it isn't the ultimate good in their life. If we are in a war spiritually, shouldn't we be raising courageous kids, bold kids, kids that know their Heavenly Father and are able to go meet the battle head on instead of kids that are like, Mom, protect me. Right? It's a lie. And what does it do? It destroys the potential of our next generation to step out into what God has made them and called them to be because we've sent them the message that what you need to be is safe. When what they need to be is filled with the Spirit, quickened for the battle that God has called us to. Little lie. I've seen this one. Um, As a believer, you're called to forgive and forget. Forgive and forget. Now, how many of you are really good at that? You know why? Because it's not the truth. We're not called to forgive and forget. We're called to forgive. There's a difference. We are also called to reconcile and restore when that opportunity is available to us. But so much goes on. It it is used to keep people trapped endlessly in these cycles of hurt and pain and dysfunction because, well, you can do it to me again because I'm a believer. I should forgive and forget. Well, I'll go ahead and I'll act like it never happened. I should forgive and forget. It's ridiculousness. Did Jesus forgive these men? He's telling them that they're going to go to hell. Hmm. Did he forget what they did? You know what's interesting? God has a book up in heaven called the Book of Works. Revelation 20. Look it up. Do you know how people who don't come to Christ are judged? out of the book of their works. He doesn't forget. As a matter of fact, with you and I as believers, it's when he says he forgets it, he's kind of specific about it. It's not that he couldn't remember it. It's that he chooses not to. He says, and I will remember them no more. You hear that? I will remember them no more. I will place them as far as the east is from the west for me. In other words, I will take them and put them somewhere so that they are as far away as possible from me so that I will choose not to look on them. We get this all crazy stuff in our heads. Well, I don't know. You know, my husband's abusive, but I'm a Christian, so I'm supposed to forgive and forget. I don't know. It doesn't sound like the Bible to me. You're supposed to forgive, but you're also supposed to act. There are things that When someone makes a choice, you have to act by accepting that choice. And if someone decides to walk away in your life, forgiving is a hard process and hard enough. It's confusing enough without trying to make it into this super spiritual, magical snap of your fingers where everything's good again. Because that's not what forgiveness is. And so Satan lies to us. It is his normal way. He brings us close enough to the truth so that it sounds like truth. He convinces us to believe it as truth but it brings devastating effect. I wonder how wary are you of the deceiver? There are some of us who take that to such a degree that we're wary of people who are serving God because we're, we're scared of everybody as deceivers. Let me tell you this. Jesus wasn't scared of the deceiver and neither do you or I need to be. If you have a passion for the Father and if you recognize and know the truth, the truth sets you free, right? Right? You don't need to be all worried. You'll know because you'll volunteer for the deception. Many of you have. I have. Yeah, I'll I'll believe that lie because I like it. Not because I didn't know it was a lie. On the other side, Jesus says that those who follow Satan are like him. So if Satan's a liar, how honest are you? Who are you following? Are you truthful in what you speak? Can people rely on what you say? Are you skilled at giving an impression with your words that isn't completely true? Are you a great editor of what you tell people so that they'll think what you want them to think? Believers should be people who take after Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. We should be people of the truth. Jesus says, hey, listen, I'm telling you the truth and you reject it. Our reaction to the truth is telltale. When the truth comes, do you embrace it? Do you believe it? Do you love it? Or is it undesirable because it seems too costly and too dangerous? At the beginning of this whole story, you remember there was this woman caught in adultery, and they wanted to condemn her because they, they caught her in the very act. There was no question about what she did. And Jesus said, whoever's without sin cast the first stone. Here down later on in the chapter, he says, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? And the answer is, no. And he says, if I am telling the truth, if you can't prove me wrong, if you have no standing to judge me, why don't you believe me? I wonder today, do you believe that you can prove Jesus wrong? That God made a mistake in your life? That what has come your way from God's hand that he didn't prevent or that he allowed or that he gave you is somehow wrong and you're a better judge of right and wrong than God is? What kind of lie do we have to swallow to believe that God's way isn't best? That God makes mistakes? That God isn't good or faithful? What kind of lie do we have to believe for that to feel true? At the end, he says, if you belong to God, you hear what God says. And so today I'm asking you, do you hear this? Do you have open eyes and an open heart to see through the works of our enemy? There are so many lies around us, and they are so loud our culture loves them. Many, many are deceived and and sucked in by them. Sucked in by, this is what life's about. This is what you want in life. This is what matters. This is what doesn't matter. Lies, lies, lies. Are you in need today of a reset from your heavenly father? Do you need him to open your eyes to Satan's attack on your heart, on your mind? How much have you fallen into sync with your enemy? So we're going to close today with a song that's a prayer. And it's a prayer I hope that each of you will pray. To ask for God's renewing and restoring work in your soul. Because the war rages on. You're going to walk out of here and go into a war. Are you ready to face your enemy? Understand that the enemy acts in line with his nature. He loves to destroy He loves to hate. He loves to lie. It's his native language. Let's be wise in seeing it for what it is. Let's fall in love with Jesus again. Pursue him instead of tripping into destruction. Reject passions that are empty and false. Reject the destruction of wanting what is ungodly. Reject the lies that trap us. Instead, turn your heart today over to Jesus. Let him make you over from the inside out. So let's pray this prayer together as Kara sings.